Al Jazeera podcast. The European Union is divided on Gaza. Germany fully supports Israel, while others like Spain, Belgium and Ireland are calling for an end to the war. So what's behind these divisions? And can a split EU play any kind of meaningful role? I'm Nastasia Tay, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's now bring in our guests. They're all joining us from Brussels, the headquarters of the EU. Grace O'Sullivan is a member of the European Parliament, representing the Green Party in Ireland. She's also a member of the European Parliament's Delegation for Relations with Palestine. Martin Konecci is the founder and director of the European Middle East Project, an independent organization specializing in European and international policies on the Israel-Palestine conflict. And we also have Suzanne Lynch. She's the chief Brussels correspondent for Politico and also hosts its podcast, EU Confidential. Thank you so much for joining us today on Inside Story. A warm welcome to, to each of you. Suzanne, I'll start with you because I know you were on the ground there in the building at the last EU summit. Can you give us a, a read at the moment of, of the tone of the conversation? We obviously know that the divisions are, are deep. How entrenched are they? I think they're extremely entrenched. I think the problem for the EU is that the European Commission in particular doesn't really have a strong role when it comes to foreign policy. At the end of the day, this is the prerogative of each member states. The EU comprises 27 different countries. Um, a lot of the time, as you mentioned in the report, they coalesce in what they what they believe. For example, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there was pretty much broad consensus about how to uh, respond to that. On the Israeli-Palestinian issue, however, it has always been a very divisive issue. So you have a very different perspective on that conflict if you were, for example, in Germany and Austria, or if you're in Spain and Ireland. And I think one of the, the failings of the EU is that in the early days, in the days following October 7th, after that Hamas attack on Israel, the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, and the head of the European Parliament, Roberta Metzler, decided to go to Tel Aviv to show their support to Israel, but didn't consult with, with others, did not consult with the other parts of the EU and indeed uh, by member states. So although they had the support of some countries for this, some countries weren't happy that they went and spoke for Europe on that. So since that, I think the EU has been struggling to project a united front, to put out its own version, its own stance on this issue. And they've been on the back foot, really, since October the 7th, about getting ahead of this story mm -hmm. and trying to um, establish some kind of a unified stance on this. Uh, Grace, you've been very, very critical, openly critical of the European Parliament and, and how, uh, well, the lack of stance on, on this issue. Has the tone there shifted as this war has continued and, and we've seen the death toll rise in Gaza? I think there is a very slight shift. Um, I suppose going back uh, several months, I was in the West Bam uh, Bank and East Jerusalem, and we were asking uh, when we came home from that EU mission that there would be clear uh, communication in relation to the, uh, the Palestinian and Israeli situation. Um, and there was, there was no appetite whatsoever Really, there was no appetite for any um, uh, one to engage uh, on that level. And now the, the slight shift I think we're seeing um, is that we have um, the EU foreign chief uh, Borrell today saying that, um, that recognising Palestine will provide security 
for Israelis and peace for Palestine. So there is a slight shift. Nevertheless, I completely agree uh, with what Suzanne was saying. I mean, there has been absolute chaos uh, since the 7th of October, uh, mixed messaging, no clear line uh, of communication from the EU in relation to the situation. And there are things we can do. I mean, there's very clear uh, actions we can take. Um, what uh, we're calling for is that we look at the uh, trade relationship with Israel and uh, where there are um, uh, obvious um, uh, international uh, breaches of, of law, then we have to uh, take mm -hmm. uh, some action. So we're seeing kind of a double speak, really, because on one hand, in terms of uh, Ukraine and Russia, the EU is quite uh, clear and consistent. In terms of Palestine, uh, Gaza, and uh, Israel, we are uh, we are not seeing clear direction whatsoever, and this is this is a huge mm -hmm. problem. Well, that contrast has been very stark throughout this conflict. Uh, Grace, you talk there about this this chaos that that's emerged in the EU. Uh, Martin, let me ask you a little more about that because divisions at the member state level aren't all that uncommon. But there has been a lot of division, too, seemingly at, at very high levels of leadership. Uh, Charles Michel, the, the president of the European Council, Ursula von der Leyen, the, um, the president of the European Commission, they haven't exactly been seeing eye to eye on this. Can you unpack some of those dynamics for us? Yes, uh, exactly. I mean, the divisions between member states are kind of usual on this issue. But as Susanna already mentioned, um, what has been uh, maybe uh, unique or unusual about the response to this particular crisis is the, the, the stance taken by the president of the European Commission and the president of the European Parliament, uh, Roberta Metzola. The president of the Commission is Ursula von der Leyen. And they have taken uh, positions which firmly sided with Israel and with the Israeli narrative. And that created a division at, uh, at, at the level of the EU leadership. Uh, as opposed to them, uh, Mr. Borrell, whom you have mentioned already, the EU foreign policy chief, took a, let's say, much more moderate, uh, nuanced position. And Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, has been somewhere in between them, I would say, closer to Borrell. So, yes, uh, we have had divisions at the levels of member states and also at the level of the top EU leadership. Mm -hmm. And I would say there have been also divisions within each member state, because ultimately this is because we Europeans are divided about this issue. Everywhere, I want to get to some of, some of those uh, national level dynamics in just a minute, but Suzanne, you mentioned, we've been talking a lot here about leadership, and you mentioned that trip that von der Leyen made to Israel very, very quickly after October 7th in, in the aftermath of those attacks. And, and there's been speculation about whether that was in in her capacity as, as a German politician or as an EU leader. And obviously, Germany's taken a very, very strong stance on this, and they've been very pro-Israel. There's obviously a huge amount of history there as well. Can you explain that a little for us? Yeah, I mean, it is important to say that Ursula von der Leyen is a German politician. She's the German representative of the European Commission. And I think instinctively, uh, she decided to go to Israel. And I think her political uh, mistake was that she didn't envisaged that this would be controversial. I think she genuinely didn't see the problem with this, that she would maybe need to consult with other people, that this was going to be a divisive issue. She she went there without kind of thinking. We know did not inform Joseph Borrell, the foreign policy chief, or Charles Michel, 
who represents member states. So we know that happened. And I do think that it does reflect her, her nationality. I mean, her background, she comes from, she's got a lot of German advisors as well. And I mean, the reality is Germany, because of their history, because of the history of the Holocaust, um, has a very pro-Israel stance in its foreign policy. Um, I was in Berlin myself a few weeks ago, and this came through, a, I mean, the coalition government in Germany, three different parties mm -hmm. are in government, and it is cross-party, the sense that uh, they see uh, the pro-Israel and, and, and Israel's right, as they see it, to defend itself uh, as, as core to their own foreign policy. Now, they're not alone. Germany also has this, um, other countries that have this stance include Austria, uh, mm -hmm. I'm thinking Czech Republic, Hungary, yeah. etc. So, I mean, that is, because Germany is the biggest country in the EU, you know, it, what, what it says matters. So uh, I think the other issue for von der Leyen and Metzler is that they left it a little bit too long after the October the 7th attacks, whereas the Biden administration, Secretary Blinken, went fairly quickly in a few days and then reached out to some other Gulf countries. They left it until maybe six days afterwards, went to Tel Aviv, and there was no way outreach. Uh, to any Arab countries. Yeah. So I think, again, there was a kind of naivety about how this would play across the EU, whereas even the American, the Biden administration, you know, was more uh, nuanced in its approach, even at that stage. Um, but she, you know, it has to be said, we're coming to the end of the EU's five-year mandate at the moment. We have elections next year. Ursula von der Leyen has been seen as a very strong commission president, very popular. This is her first kind of big mishap, I think. So she's mm -hmm. definitely on the back foot uh, since that uh, reaction played out in the week or so following the October the 7th attack. Suzanne, you're saying there that the, the support in Germany for Israel seems to cross the political spectrum there. I, I was interested to see that even the Greens have obviously come out very strongly pro-Israel, very much in contrast to, to your Green Party in Ireland, Grace. Uh, is that something that, that took you by surprise? No, not necessarily, because uh, as Suzanne said, I mean, in Germany, you have it, it's that history, um, you know, and the, the German Greens uh, are, um, you know, large uh, um, here in the European Parliament. Uh, the Germans in the group are large, uh, the largest group um, in our case. So uh, I'm not altogether uh, surprised. Uh, however, I think... It shows a weakness here in the European Union where uh, members from um, smaller um, uh, uh, parties or governments, um, you know, uh, are almost at a disadvantage. So that Germany, because it's the largest um, uh, group in, in the, um, the largest country, uh, with members in the European Union, that they uh, almost have a, a disproportionate um, amount of leverage. And I think Ursula von der Leyen made a huge mistake um, by one not consulting and just mm -hmm. taking off um, to Tel Aviv in support. Uh, but I do think that governments like Ireland, um, you know, have, uh, we've been extremely consistent. Uh, even today now, the um, Irish uh, ambassador to uh, Israel is be, has been um, uh, uh, brought into the uh, in uh, for uh, a discussion because of re over the weekend mm -hmm. the Prime Minister of Ireland, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, his comments on the release of the um, hostages and the language he used. So, uh, but just come back to Europe. Um, 
I still think we are not uh, working together as a, un a as a union, which mm -hmm. is our primary function, um, and we're not. There's not clear messaging, and instead of working it out and coming up with mm -hmm. a unified um, position, we're we're still fudging, we're still unsure, and it, it just isn't good enough. And for example, the fact that we haven't caused for us called for a ceasefire, that we call for a humanitarian pause, is, is from my uh, perspective, just not good enough. I, I want to get to some of that language in just a minute, but, but Martin, just staying with this idea of, of divides on, on the lines of the political spectrum, which we've just been talking about, do you think that that's broadly the case across Europe? You were talking earlier about divisions within countries themselves and, and how to approach this. Uh, yes, I would say there are divisions in each country, but, um, you know, Ireland is different from Germany and Germany is different from, uh, let's say, France and, uh, you know, Czech Republic and Hungary uh, are somewhere else as well. So within each country you have divisions, right? But uh, let's say in Ireland, uh, all the major parties, including on the center right, uh, mm -hmm. agree with a strong calls for, you know, respect for international law, for example. Whereas uh, in Germany, even the Greens yeah, and even the socialists on the center left would be very cautious about expressing any criticism or any qualification uh, for, for the Israeli operation. So the context differs from uh, country to country, but within each country you have a fierce internal debate and sure. even political conflict. In France, for example, the the, the left-wing coalition uh, uh, preparing for the elections, the European elections next year, uh, has actually broken down uh, around this issue. So it has mm -hmm. real serious political consequences uh, in, in different countries in Europe. Martin, we've also seen uh, the, the rise of, of the far right in many countries in Europe, and I'm curious about how that plays into, into this dynamic. Yes, uh, it plays into it very much because for the um, far right and even hard right, which is really ascendant, is growing in Europe. You saw the results of the Dutch elections uh, last week in which uh, the far right uh, party uh, won. Uh, all these far right parties are very strongly supportive unconditionally of uh, Israel and even some of them explicitly of the occupation and building of settlements. Uh, that's the case of this Dutch leader. And that's because for them, Israel is a sort of a model of a country which uh, applies very tough line against the other, you know, the Arabs uh, and, and Muslims, uh, which links to the debate about immigration and integration in European societies. So these two things connect together and they kind of overlap. And Israel-Palestine becomes a part of a kind of a culture war uh, which is going on in Europe around these issues. Suzanne, do you, do you agree with that? The, the idea of, of this being part of that broader culture war? And, and I'm curious, does this also, the, the way that Europe has approached this or and the, this lack of, of unity around this issue, has that affected the way that the EU is seen outside of the EU by, by Arab states, potentially? Well, I think that is one of the dangers for the EU. And you've heard figures like Josef Borrell, the foreign policy chief, who's taken pretty much a more pro-Palestinian uh, stance on this. He has raised concerns about this. He's worried about the impact this is going to have on the EU's reputation mm. in the wider area. And actually, today, there's a kind of a sub-meeting in Spain um, with member representatives from Arab countries, but also from across Europe, different foreign ministers, to try and talk more about, you know, 
the po what the situation post war um and maybe you know ceasefire ideas and that kind of thing so i think there was a a worry among some people that the eu would lose some clout would lose um, some respect uh, from certain countries uh, in the Gulf, for example, in the middle, wider in Middle East, because of the way it handled uh, the the attack in the first place. And in saying that, I do think this is a problem for the EU because ultimately the EU is a very important institution. It's it's one of the biggest trading blocks of the world. It's it's almost 500 million people, but it's. The EU's role is not really as a major foreign policy player. It's not a military power. You know, that's the job of NATO probably um, more than the EU, for example. It is a big trading block and, and what it does matters. But even with the war in Ukraine, what, what, where it's had the most effect is on sanctions and those kind of things mm -hmm. rather than that hard military power. So in a sense, I think it's underlined to many how unimportant in one way the EU is when it comes to foreign policy, because we had a situation, you mentioned the summit there a few weeks ago when all the EU leaders met here in Brussels. And while they were haggling about language for about five or six hours, whether they would use the word pause or pauses, it wasn't even being covered in Israeli media. People didn't yeah. even know this meeting was happening in Brussels. And I think that kind of showed that disconnect, that even though there was this agonizing debate here in Brussels about the EU stance, it's limited in terms of what impact that is actually having on the ground and whether you know, it is having much effect on how this war is playing out. Uh, Suzanne, I, I just want to pick up on something you, you mentioned there, that the focus for, for a lot of EU diplomats, uh, Joseph Borrell in, in particular, has been on the so-called day after, on this kind of trying to define a post-war future for, for the Palestinian territories. Suzanne, do you think that that's partly because there's been so much division around this language, humanitarian pause, ceasefire, humanitarian pauses, that they're rather focusing on something that there, there is perhaps, it's easier to find consensus on? Yes, perhaps. And it, it's interesting the way to see where they coalesce. So, for example, you're hearing a lot of language from Burrell in particular about the UN. But the United Nations generally has taken, you know, it caused, it, it has taken a more, shall we say, a balanced uh, approach reflecting the makeup of the UN. So you're often going to hear from Burrell, for example, a mention of um, UN's calls uh, to adhere to international law, etc. Uh, but I do think, though, as well with the EU, what's happening, you know, behind the scenes is that a lot of the bigger countries, France, uh, Germany, who are members of the G7 or the G20, like there are also mm -hmm. discussions happening on that level. Um, they're also attacking close to the US position, the UK position. So I think as well as the EU stance, you've also got this other layer where some of the bigger EU countries are part of that and are privy to those conversations. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't think anything is happening in a vacuum here. For all the talk about the EU getting a stance, there are also these others, the UN, the G20, the G7. Uh, and they're also part of the conversation with some of the EU countries being part of those. And sure. I think that's impacting how they're speaking about this. Grace, I see you, you nodding there. I, I want to bring you in here and, and also just ask you to, to reflect upon the, the role that the EU plays, what kind of an impact it can make. As Suzanne was saying, in some places it, it might be considered a, a little bit peripheral, but is the EU potentially very powerful in its ability to influence other powerful players? We really have opportunity um, uh, to, to be more involved, but I definitely think within 
the 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 EU itself. We've got to to get our own house in order very very quickly, um, and we have to uh, you know um, try to come to some kind of a unified position that we we need this war to end. We need this conflict to end because the loss of civilian lives, the loss of humanitarian workers' lives, the UN are losing people. I mean, there's such it's such a catastrophic. Uh, a, a loss of life that um, you know the EU must uh, engage more positively and try to restore um, the the damage uh, we've done uh, to the the whole union uh, over the last course of, of weeks because we haven't uh, we haven't shown the capacity to give mm-hmm. uh, leader, leadership and even on that I mean the fact that uh, I, I said. I've been there in in February, and already, you know, there was was no appetite within the European Union to discuss Mm -hmm. the situation prior to the 7th of October attack, that we have to uh, uh, move towards a two-state solution. That, to my mind, and I know um, that would be a strong Irish position. We've been hearing that as well from from a lot of... We've been hearing that a lot from from EU leaders in terms of a two-state solution. And Joseph Borrell has been reiterating again today that they envision only that the Palestinian Authority would be the body that would have to take control of a post-war Gaza. Martin, I I want to bring you in here on something that Grace mentioned, and and that's aid, EU aid to Palestine. Now, obviously, a huge amount of that aid goes through the Palestinian Authority, the PA. How much do you think that aid buys the EU sway in in trying to help determine a post-war Palestinian future? Well, the the aid is uh, given to to the Palestinian side only, so it doesn't buy much influence with the uh, Israeli side, although Israel is actually has has a strong interest in the continuation on, of this aid sure. because it sort of helps keep stability and to continue the uh, the Israeli occupation. Um, so uh, I think the the issue here is with um, being able to apply the EU's leverage to to the to both sides, and in particular Israel as as the occupying party. Uh, people can agree on the two-state solution as a slogan, and it is, you know, interesting to see that that's where you have more unity. Uh, everybody, everybody is now talking about it. But um, how do you move beyond the slogan? Uh, if you want to uh, actually advance the two-state solution, one of the things it means is, for example, countering the growth the, of the Israeli settlements in the West Bank, mm-hmm. which make the two-state solution impossible. And this is where you immediately get into a problem. Take uh, Ursula von der Leyen, about whom we have spoken. Uh, her stances on on uh, the last month are not new, actually. And you know, when there was a discussion about how to address the possibility of annexation of the West Bank, she uh, stood on the brakes and she prevented a discussion about possible EU measures uh, to oppose the annexation. So this is where there is a problem. You know, people agree on a slogan, but as soon as we move into discussing policy policy measures that could help advance the two-state solution, you get a division and you get a blockage from uh, people and governments who side unconditionally with Israel. Mm Let me bring you in here, sorry, just very briefly, Suzanne, because there's been a lot of discussion about what countries can do. And here we're talking about various different policies on various different issues that are very contentious in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. 
Some countries are now obviously going it alone. We've seen Belgium come out with some very, very strong language. There's, I believe, even some legislation in the works to, to ban trade with settlements in the occupied territories. Suzanne, do you think that as, you're, as you sit there in the EU that we might see other countries uh, try to do the same? Yes, I think you can. I mean, at the end of the day, countries are uh, quite protective when it comes to it about their own foreign policy. Um, yes, as I said earlier, I mean, the EU does want to have a united stance, but at the end of the day, the, each country has its own foreign policy. So I do think that you're going to see, and you, you have been seeing, each country take its own stance on this to an extent and um, reflecting their public's view, but also their political view, if they have a coalition government, etc. Uh, and I think you're going to see more of that. Um, there's growing frustration among some countries that the EU is you know, taking too long to put out statements uh, on this over the last few days. It is very hard for them to even put out a statement because you've got these 27 different views mm. and you have some countries blocking a statement. So, yeah, I think we are going to be seeing some more kind of unilateral moves or countries taking a stronger stance either way on this issue. Well, thank you all for reflecting on this with me. Obviously, this is an, an, a huge issue going forward as the, the conflict seems set to continue. Grace O'Sullivan, Martin Konecci and Suzanne Lynch, thank you so much for joining us here on Inside Story. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Fintan Monaghan, Veronica Pedrosa and Jimmy Gettahun. Studio sound by Mark McDonald. This programme was edited by Andre Ustazen, Zaina Bado and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch each of our episodes. Thanks for listening and tune in again on Tuesday for our next one. Coming up on The Take, women are increasingly serving in Ukraine's armed forces, but do they have the gear to support them? That and other hurdles on The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.